Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential Television. Did you crack under the pressure? Did you show strength? Did you get angry? Have you blamed other people? You see, I'm a person that believes that we create our own experience. I don't think there are accidents in this world. But what's forward going to look like? Hey guys, it's Dr. Phil, and this is Phil in the Blanks. I'm going to be straight with you. I am very, very excited about this podcast, and I'm going to tell you why. I like talking to people that care about things that matter. I think this is a podcast that's going to matter. I like having the opportunity to make a difference. This is not a podcast about COVID-19. This is not a podcast about the coronavirus. This is not a podcast that is specifically about quarantine. It is a podcast about the fact that something has happened in your life that has never happened before in the history of our country. I hope it never happens again in your life. It has been a changing event in your life. Now, one of the things that I've talked to you about before is something I've called 1075. I've said in your life there will be 10 defining moments, seven critical choices, and five people that will write on the slate of who you are in a lasting fashion. Now, what's a defining moment? A defining moment is something that happens. It can be quick or it can be slow. It can be lasting. But it is something that happens in your life that you are changed permanently. You were one way before it happened, and you were different after it happened. It changed you in a lasting way. Maybe it's something positive. It could be the birth of your child. That that was a moment when you saw that happen. That was a moment that changed your life. And I suspect that we are going to share the reality that what has happened here in shutting down the entire country, the entire United States, with 90% of the people going into quarantine, is going to be a shared defining moment. Certainly, it's going to be a defining moment in the collective consciousness of America. We're going to share that. 9-11 was a defining moment in our lives. It was certainly a defining moment in my life because I, like so many people, believed nobody is going to attack the most powerful country on the globe on its home soil. They might attack an outlying base or they might attack an ally somewhere or they might attack a boat, but they damn sure not going to attack us on our home soil, and then it happened. And I kind of felt like it was a death of innocence. I don't know about you, but I kind of felt like, well, we can't walk around thinking that anymore. All of a sudden, we became aware of terrorist cells that already existed inside the country. It was just kind of a death of innocence. It changed things for me, and it changed things for almost everybody that I talked to. And now here we are with another collective defining moment where we have sat at home to protect ourselves from an invisible enemy. And in so doing, we have watched 
the number one economy in the world collapse around our ears. And why did we let that happen? Well, we made a decision. Do we want to save lives or do we want to save our economy? We made the decision that human life was more precious than our economy. Was that the right decision? Was it a necessary decision? Everybody has their own opinion of that. I'm not interested in talking about that with you today. It is what it is. It happened. It is an event that has changed your life. Maybe you're one of the people that has written to me and said, Dr. Phil, I had a family business. It wiped us out. We had this business since 1962. It's wiped us out. I've had people that I've talked to that have just cried and said, we can never get back our business. I've had people that have said, I had 30 employees that have been with me 25 years. I had to send them all home. I can't keep them. I can't keep the doors open. I've seen how it's impacted people. I've seen people and heard from people that lost loved ones to this terrible virus. So I've seen loss and all on both sides. It's happened. It's been a crisis. But here's my question. I said this is not about the coronavirus. It's about a defining moment, an event in your life. I'm very excited about having this conversation because it's going to be so important in terms of what you do next. You may have heard me say, when a crisis happens, it does not create heroes. It does not create cowards. Crises reveal who we are. Crises don't make heroes. If a hero emerges during a crisis, if a leader comes to the forefront during a crisis, then that's who they were. There was just an opportunity for them to be who they were. Crises don't make heroes. They just reveal who we are. And my question to you is, what have you learned about you during this crisis? Now, really think about that. What have you learned about who you are during this crisis? And you have to be really, really honest. Did you respond the way you expected that you would? I mean, let's face it, at some level, we've all faced the possibility of dying. We've faced the possibility of getting very, very ill. We've faced the possibility of losing loved ones. We've watched the economy collapse around our communities. We've seen businesses close. We've seen store shelves empty. How have you responded to this? And maybe you haven't really thought about that, but let's think about it now. Did you crack under the pressure? Did you show strength? Did you get angry? Have you blamed other people? Think about what you've learned about you. Don't think about whether this has been managed the right way, not managed the right way, over-evaluated under-responded to. I'm not interested in analyzing the crisis, just acknowledging that there was one and asking you to take stock and say, crises, for all of the bad that they bring into our lives, they also create an opportunity to learn about who we are. Now, is it worth it? Seldom is it worth it. But nonetheless, the lesson is there. Is the tuition too high? Of course it's too high. If you lose one life so you can learn a lesson, the tuition is too high. You lose 50,000 lives, the tuition is ridiculously too high. It's not worth it. If you can take something from it, at least it won't drive you so insane if you can create some meaning to the suffering, some meaning to the loss. 
if it can forge you into being a better person, if you can know yourself better, be better prepared for what might be around the next corner. Now, if you've followed me at all over the last 23 years that I've had the privilege of being in a public forum, you've heard me say that one of the ways we learn about who we are is the same way we learn about other people. The way we form our self-image, the way we create our level of self-worth is by watching what we do in the face of a challenge. And that's why I've said overindulgence by parents is a real tragic thing because you cheat a child out of the opportunity to observe themselves overcoming challenges and obstacles. So they don't have the ability to attribute to themselves, hey, I did that. I remember one time when Robin and I had just gotten married. So, my gosh, this was, it was before we got married. There was a little girl that lived next door, and Robin just loved talking to her, and she was very smart. She was four or five years old. I remember one day she came over and declared to Robin very clearly. She said, I can zip, button, and tie. And Robin said, excuse me? And she said, I can zip, button, and tie. And she said, you can. Well, let me see. She didn't have anything to zip, but she had something she could button and some shoes she could tie, and she showed her right there. And she was so proud because her mom and dad didn't do it for her. She could do it, and she was proud of that, and she had seen herself do it, and she was so proud, and her self-esteem was built because she could zip, button, and tie. We're the same way in life as that little girl was. We watch ourselves overcome learning a new job, getting through childbirth, handling challenges in a marriage, learning a new job skill, handling a promotion, getting fired, getting back on our feet, getting a new job. We see that we can handle that. We have experiences with death. You know, my first one was with a pet, then a grandparent. Well, I got through that okay, and I learned, I could see that, hey, I didn't know how I was going to do with this, but I got through it okay. So I attributed to myself the ability to handle loss and not come unraveled. I'm going to tell you a story about a crisis in my life that really, really changed me and how I learned about myself the way I want you to learn about yourself. I'm going to tell you this story, and I'm going to tell you in advance, this isn't a story about me being a hero. This isn't a humble brag. I don't know if you know what humble brag means, but a humble brag is something where somebody pretends to have humility and to be humble, but secretly they're bragging about how great they are. This is not that kind of story. I did overcome something, but the situation occurred because of my stupidity. And when it was over with, I was scared as a 10-year-old child. My knees damn near buckled as I was walking away. But I did learn something. I've been a pilot since a very young age. On this particular night, it was in the early 70s. I think I was 18 or had just turned 19 a few months earlier. And I had a single-engine airplane and I was flying from Kansas City to Dallas. I had flown into Kansas City, and it was quite warm, and then a real cold snap hit, and a huge snowstorm had come through, and there was just a blanket of snow from Kansas City all down through that part of the country. It covered St. Louis, Kansas City, Oklahoma City, Wichita, Kansas, everywhere through there. There's just about an eight, ten inch blanket of snow over everything. I landed in balmy temperatures, it's probably 60 degrees in the winter, and I took off at midnight one night. It was probably, I don't know, 10, 15 degrees. I took off a little before midnight and had several hundred miles to go. And uh, everything looked white. I mean, you look down, everything looked white. I mean, rooftops were white, ground was white. You couldn't tell the difference between the top of a house or a field because everything looked the same. And I was about 
18, 20 miles north of Oklahoma City, and I was just kind of humming along, and all of a sudden, my engine just started kind of running rough and then just quit. Let me tell you how quiet it gets at 12,000 feet at 2 a.m. in pitch black in the dead of winter. It gets very, very quiet. And you start going down very, very fast, and you can't see anything below because everything looks the same. And I, of course, did everything I could. I tried to restart the engine and tried to restart it, tried to restart it, you know, put in the mixture of the fuel, took it back, pushed it in, took it back, kept trying to restart it. I immediately got on the radio, declared an emergency, talking to Oklahoma City Approach, very calm voice. I said, I need a vector to the nearest airport. He very reluctantly told me, well, I hate to say this, but you're uh, 18 miles north of Wiley Post Airport. And I thought, oh my gosh. And I just kept trying to start that engine. And I finally realized it's not going to start. And you want it to start so bad that I finally had to take the key out of the ignition and throw it in the back luggage compartment to keep myself from trying to start the damn engine again. Because it just wasn't going to start, and that was distracting me. I had to actually throw the keys over my shoulder into the back so I wasn't tempted to keep trying to start the damn engine. It wasn't going to start. The last two or three miles of approach to that airport are over a lake. So you come up short, you're going to get wet in the dead of winter. Now, to make a long story longer, I obviously made it. I'm here. I said this wasn't a hero story or a, a humble brag. The reason the engine quit is because I didn't take time to fill the tanks up when I landed. So moisture got in the tanks. Before you take off, you always check for water in your tank. But when I checked them, condensation had formed on the top of the tank and frozen. I checked for water, and I didn't get any because it was frozen on the inside top of the tank. And as I took off and gas sloshed around, it, of course, melted the ice and turned it into water. And it settled and finally got down to where the fuel line was and got sucked into the engine and just killed it. There was so much water, it just fouled everything and killed the engine. Now, why did that happen? It was my stupidity. You should fill your tanks up when you get there. And then there's no room for that to happen. It's what I call an accident-enabling factor. My fault. I own it. I did it. I was young and stupid. Also, it's not the brightest thing to do to take off at midnight in the dead of winter following a snowstorm in a single-engine airplane flying halfway across the country when you're like 18, 19 years old. But, of course, when you're 18 or 19 years old, you're bulletproof, right? So I totally own that I created the situation because that's the case. We create our own experience. I'll talk about that in a minute. But I did learn something about myself. I learned that when I was in a really bad situation, and the reality was that it was probably more likely that I was going to die than I was going to live, that I didn't panic. I actually stayed hooked up to it and worked the problem and got the best angle of attack and got the most out of the airplane I possibly could as a glider and made it in and stayed on task and kept focused and did everything I could instead of throwing my hands up in the air and crying as I went into a field. And I learned that about myself that, okay, I faced a bad situation that I could have a really bad outcome from and I didn't panic at the time. Now, when I got on the ground and landed and got out, I was scared as a 10-year-old kid. My legs were buckling and shaking so hard I could barely walk. I didn't panic at the time. After when I realized what had happened, that's when I got scared. And I thought, oh my God, I cannot believe that just happened. That's when it hit me. But at the time, I stayed on task and I learned that about myself. And I'm sorry that it happened, but if it was going to happen, I'm glad it happened early because I've known that about myself now for the last 50 years. 
And there have been a few similar situations, and I went into them having learned that about myself, knowing I'm not going to panic here. I'm going to work the problem. What have you learned in this crisis? What did you observe yourself do? Have you held your family together? Have you stayed on task? And I'm bringing this up because whatever it is, if you don't like what you have observed, it ain't over. You can still change how you manage this, how you change this. A lot of people have asked me, Dr. Phil, do you think we're going to get back to normal? That's not the question to ask. The question to ask is, how are we going to move forward? Not do you think we're going to get back to normal, because that's not the question to ask. The question to ask is, how are we going to move forward? What's going to be the best way to move forward? Back to normal. I don't like the word back. Are we going to go back to what we used to do? And the answer to that, if you just want to entertain that, is I don't think we will. But what's forward going to look like? How are we going to move forward? Look, everybody has, and this is why I'm so excited about this, because I want you to really do this. I think it's so important that you be who you are on purpose. Don't just react. Don't just kind of go out there and let the world dictate who you are and how you are who you are. Decide who you are and be that person on purpose. I mean, maybe people like it. Maybe they don't like it. But be who you are on purpose and own it. Everybody has a philosophy of life. I used to think I didn't have a philosophy of life because, you know, people would talk about Ben Franklin, say, now, Ben Franklin's philosophy of life or George Washington's philosophy of life or John Kennedy's philosophy of life or Will Rogers' philosophy of life. And I used to think, well, I must be very shallow because I don't have a philosophy of life. And then the more and more I thought about it, I actually do have a philosophy of life, and it's embodied in a lot of the values you've heard me talk about over the last 23 years if you've honored me with your attention. And I don't say that to be politically correct, honored me with your attention. I truly believe that is an honor. I mean, I've had millions and millions and millions of people watch me over the years, and I don't take that for granted. That's part of my philosophy of life. I have never one time in 23 years had somebody ask me for a picture or an autograph that I've said no. And if somebody's ever told you I have, they're a damn liar. Not one time in 23 years have I ever said no. Because I believe it's a privilege that somebody would care enough to want a picture with me. I got a mirror. Seriously? I think it's an honor that people listen to what I have to say. And I don't think I'm the repository of all knowledge. And if you disagree with what I say, throw that out. Don't throw me out. You don't have to agree with everything I say, but there will be value in some of it. And so I take very seriously that people pay attention to some of the things that I say. I think some of the things I say are well-researched. The things that I talk about on the show are what we call evidence-based therapies. I have kind of an off-the-wall, shoot-from-the-hip delivery style But what I deliver is empirically supported. I don't make it up. There's clinical evidence to support the advice that I give or I don't give it. So I have a philosophy of life, and it's embodied in the things that I say. We all have what I call an attitude of approach. An attitude of approach to life. Now think about that. As you go forward in your life, as you walk out your door every day, you have an attitude of approach. Now, some people approach it with energy and excitement, and they're just optimistic and enthusiastic. Other people are just Debbie Downer. You know, they walk in the room and it feels like somebody left. You know, they just suck the energy out of the room. 
Some people are angry. Some people are perennial victims. But you have an attitude of approach to life. What is it? And I want you to really be able to articulate that. What is your attitude of approach? Because if you don't like it, you want to change it. And you can't know that if you don't label what it is. And why is that important for us to talk about now? Why am I so excited about that now? Because you're going to have an opportunity to relaunch, to reset everything as you go back out there. You see, I'm a person that believes that we create our own experience. I don't think there are accidents in this world. I don't think that we just randomly fall into whatever role in this life we have. I just don't think that's true. I think we create our own experiences. Just like in the story I just told you about being at 12,000 feet, 18 miles north of Oklahoma City at 2 a.m., looking down at a blanket of snow with no engine. I created that experience with my own immaturity and stupidity. You know, my instructor always told me there's a lot of old pilots and there's a lot of bold pilots, but there aren't any old, bold pilots. I understood after that night what that meant. There's nothing illegal. There's nothing improper about flying at night. It's not like your wings fall off at night. But I was not very experienced. I didn't have a lot of hours, a lot of time. And I took off at midnight in the winter after snow. That was not the smart thing to do. I created my own experience. So when I get up there and the engine quits, I also created that by not properly getting the airplane handled when I landed. So... I created all of that by inexperience, immaturity, bad decision-making. All of those things contribute to that experience. Now, did I get out of it alive and learn something from it? Yes. Was there a silver lining? I sure didn't see it at the time, but as I look back, I did learn something from it. But I'm asking you, what have you learned so far, and what's your attitude of approach as you go back out there? Because you will create your own experience. And if there's something you don't like, this is the time to change it. You know, ask yourself, what is the life circumstance that you do not like? What did I do to arrange the situation so that it happened the way it happened? What did I do to make the result possible? I accept that I'm the one who did it, so what was it? If there was something in your life, some circumstance, some result that you didn't like, what was it and what did you do to make it happen? If you accept that you're accountable, I mean, did you trust foolishly? Did you maybe not pay attention and miss important warning signs? Ask yourself, did I fail to be clear about what I wanted? Did I con myself because I wanted it to be true? What choices did I make that directly led me to the result that I did not want? Just like I said in the airplane situation, I made choices that led to a result I did not want. Ask yourself, did I choose the wrong person or the wrong place? Did I choose what I chose for the wrong reasons, the wrong time? What did I fail to do that directly created the results I did not want? Did I fail to take needed action? If so, what? Did I fail to stand up for myself? Did I fail to ask for what I wanted, to require enough of myself, to tell somebody to go jump in the damn lake? Did I fail to treat myself with dignity and respect? Do I need to start certain behaviors? Do I need to stop certain behaviors as I get back out there moving forward? You need to ask yourself all of that. You know, Maya Angelou was a friend of mine. It was a real privilege of mine to get to know her. You know, she wasn't just a poet, which I thought she was really great. 
but she was just a great hang. It was really fun to hang out with her. She had a great sense of humor. And she did have a profound way of describing life. One of the favorite things that she ever said, and I think it's been quoted a lot, she said, you did what you knew how to do. And when you knew better, you did better. Think about that. It's so simple, yet so profound. You did what you knew how to do. And when you knew better, you did better. Like in my situation, I did what I knew how to do when I was young and stupid pilot. And when I knew better, I ultimately accumulated about 5,000 hours pilot in command. I never did that again. When I knew better, I did better. As a young parent, you probably made some really dumb mistakes once. When you knew better, you did better. What have you learned now? where you can now do better. You can be accountable to others, but you also need to be accountable to you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. On Oops! The Podcast, join me, comedian Julio Gallarotti, as I examine everyday life, the mistakes, the bad decisions, the goals, the jokes, the social engagements, and all things in between. I'm joined every week by producer and personal confidant, Ryan Lynch, various other comedians for witty, candid, and intoxicating conversation. Our listeners love Oops! for sophisticated banter, aka your mom could listen, and many feel like they're in the room with us chopping it up with old pals. You can find every episode of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Look, you can choose where to be, how to act, what to say, what to do, whom to be with, what to concentrate on. You choose what to believe, when to go along, when to resist, whom to trust, whom to avoid, what behaviors to emit. You choose what to say to yourself about yourself, about others, about what risks to take, what needs you have, what rights you have. You say all of those things. You choose how to be in this world. And it's very, very critical because I believe strongly in the principle of reciprocity. I believe that we get what we put out. What we put out there comes back to us. There are lots of different ways to be in the world. I describe them in different ways. There's the porcupine. These are the people who just have a chip on their shoulder. They're just prickly. You know, you think about trying to hug a porcupine. You just can't do it. They're just prickly. There are people that go through life with a chip on their shoulder. They're what I call the paws up people. You know how a dog just gets so intimidated and overwhelmed, they just roll over on their back and put all four of their paws up. It's like, just do whatever you're going to do with me. They just surrender. And those people... They've just given up. They're passengers. And then there are those people that approach life like they're just king or queen of the forest. And they just condescend to the unwashed masses. They're just, you're just lucky to have them in your presence. And then there are the posers. They're so superficial. It's just all about appearances. There's no depth to them whatsoever. People eaters. These are the controllers. They have to control everything and everyone. They have a false sense of superiority because, in fact, they're so damn scared that if they don't control everything, nothing will go their way. They don't make people be around them. Nobody would allow them to stay. 
Then there's the drama queens. Everything has to be a big drama because if they don't command attention, then nobody would ever pay them any attention because they don't think they're worthy of it. So they got to make a big deal out of everything. Then there's the analyzers. They kind of hide in their head. Do you fall into those categories or have you invented some new one? We all have a way of being in the world. Robin would tell you I'm kind of cerebral, I'm kind of an analyzer, that I go there before I go to emotion. And she's probably right. And it has seemed to work for me. I I try to remain calm when everybody around me is chaotic. That's worked for me. You know, the most common comment I get from people that watch Dr. Phil is, how do you remain so patient? I don't see how you do it, Doc. I don't see how you do it. I would just scream. I would throw people to hell off. I would. I don't know how you put up with it. I just scream at the screen sometimes. I don't know what they think I'm supposed to do, grab them by the scruff of the neck and throw them out the back door. I am pretty analytical and cerebral, but I am who I am on purpose. You know, people talk about IQ, and that's what I want to talk to you about. People define IQ a lot of different ways, you know, being smart a lot of different ways. A guy named Gardner did research back in 1983. He said there were nine kinds of IQ. There was the naturalist. They were just smart about nature. There was musical IQ, obviously, about music. There was logical, mathematical IQ, existential IQ. People were smart about life. Interpersonal IQ, smart about interactions with people. There was the bodily, kinesthetic IQ. There was linguistic IQ, the really word smart. Then Sternberg came along and said you could break it into three different categories. It was practical, creative, and analytical. People break it up a lot of different ways. And if you ask somebody, what is intelligence, uh, I'll, I'll tell you how I define it. It's not a score on a test. IQ is, to me, somebody's intelligent if they're curious. They're inquisitive. They, they have a thirst for knowledge. They, they just want to know how things work, how the world works, how, how things happen. They're, they're just curious. They're cognitively agile meaning that they can track complex things. They can maybe listen to a story, and, and there are kind of multiple storylines, and they can track them all at one time, and they're agile enough to jump from one story to another story and, and bring them together. Intelligent people are critical thinkers. They have the ability to evaluate things and say, yeah, that doesn't sound right to me. That doesn't feel authentic. I can separate the wheat from the chaff. I can get fluff from what's real. Intelligent people are open-minded. They're able to bring in new data and evaluate it. They're creative. They're adaptive. They're not tunnel-visioned and hard-headed. And I know some people back in Texas that they didn't get through fifth-grade grammar very well because that sticks out to me like a badge of ignorance when people say, we was gonna. I seen him coming. And I'm like, come on. That was in the fifth grade when you learned to conjugate. I mean, you know the difference between seen and saw, was and were. And sometimes it's colloquial or for emphasis. But sometimes it's just lazy grammar. And I know some people that couldn't pass fifth grade grammar that in their environment are brilliant. They're so adaptive. I mentioned before, I had an uncle that was just that way. And he worked on the railroad for years. I don't know what he did. He, he wasn't an engineer. He, he worked on the railroad, though. It was a good job. They had a comfortable life. But 
this guy could barely string two or three sentences together. But you parachute him into the woods with nothing but the clothes on his back, and it, it wouldn't matter, summer, winter, whatever. This guy was brilliant. He was adaptive. He would adapt to his environment. And you come back three days later, he's going to have a shelter built. He's going to be barbecuing something out there on some rocks. Uh, he's going to have made fishing poles. He's going to be, I mean, seriously, this guy was so adaptive to his environment. To me, that is really smart. I think one of the most impressive things is the ability to adapt. I'm going to face that challenge coming back. I I mean, what we've seen as Dr. Phil, I've had, you know, a, a big studio. We've had 250 people in the studio audience. We've flown people in from all over the globe as guests and all. What's going to happen in the fall? I don't know. Are we going to have 250 people packed into stage 29 as an audience? Are we going to have guests willing to fly in from New York City, London, Seattle, Dallas? I I don't know. What's our show going to be comprised of? What's Dr. Phil going to be comprised of? How are we going to get our message out there? My declaration when I started was I wanted to talk about the silent epidemics in America. I wanted to deliver common sense information to people's living rooms every day for free. I wanted to make a difference in families. I wanted to make a difference in people's lives. I wanted to deliver good, usable information to people every day. I wanted it to be entertaining. I wanted it to be fun. I wanted it to be meaningful. I wanted it to be trustworthy. And I've been doing it a certain way for 18 years. I'm not asking myself, are we going to get back to normal? I'm asking myself, how are we going to move forward? What's it going to look like? I want to be adaptive. I want to lead the pack. That's why when they said we needed to shut down, I said, no, 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 I'm not going to shut down. This is not the time for me to go away. This is the time for me to be present. So I figured out a way to do this from home. And so I've shot, I don't know, 30, 40 shows from home. I'm not as pretty, but we adapted. Great crew from all over town, from their homes. Great technicians, devoted, dedicated people made it all happen. My part's the easiest part. They scramble around and work for five or six hours before I get on the camera and the mic. What's it going to be like in the fall? I don't know, but we're going to move forward. And what's my attitude of approach going to be? My attitude of approach is going to be I'm going to lean into it. I'm not going to say, well, we are restricted here. I'm going to say, how can we redefine ourselves and make it even better? If we can't do A, B, and C, then let's do D through Z. Let's figure out how can we make this better? How can we make it bigger? How can we make it more accessible? If we can't have an audience in the studio, how can we make the audience across America interactive? How can we make it where you can ask me a question in the middle of the broadcast? How can we make this truly interactive television? How can we do something? I want to I lean into this. And I want you to lean into your life. I want you to create your own experience is what I want. And to do that, you've got to have an attitude of approach that says, I don't want to get back to normal. I don't want to be worried about, are we going to get back to normal? My philosophy of life is I'm going to create my own experience. And to do that, you've got to really focus on how you talk to yourself. And you can say, look, Dr. Phil, I I get that. This is a great pep talk, Dr. Phil. I get it. Thank you. It's great. Now, how am I going to pay my damn rent? Be adaptive. 
you will find a way. There is going to be a pent-up appetite. Our economy has not been shut down like this, except for two other times in modern history, World War I, World War II. Google it. And you will see enough sources there that you can verify whether it's just Google bullshit or if it's real. What you will see is that there was a huge bounce when it was over. Now, there was also a lot of celebration because America won both of those wars. So there was a big celebration. But there was a big bounce in the economy. There was a pent-up appetite for things that they could not get during World War I or World War II. I think there's going to be a pent-up appetite here. Now, this has not been as long as World War I or World War II. There has not been the loss of life that we had in World War I or World War II, thank God. So maybe that means we don't have as far to dig out as far to recover. But those that have the attitude I'm talking about, those that say other people are going to be standing around whining, complaining, finding somebody to blame, bitching and moaning, and then there's going to be that group of people that are doing what I'm talking about, that are leaning into this and saying, I'm looking for opportunities. I'm looking for how to reinvent myself. I'm throwing everything out the window. You know, I grew up in athletics, and I was fortunate to have coaches that said, I don't need a linebacker. I want the best athlete on the field. If he plays the linebacker position, great. But I need the 11 best athletes on the field. So we were taught not to think we were specialists. They said, I need a safety out here. Well, I'm sorry, coach. I'm a linebacker. (laughs) Not today you're not. Get your butt out there. He wanted the best 11 athletes on the field. They will find a way. They will improvise. They will adapt. So don't think you're an accountant or a hairdresser or a woodworker or a painter Be open. Look for opportunities. You might be doing something different a month from now than you were doing six months ago. I don't know. I just know that if you have an attitude of approach that says, I am smart, I am adaptive, I am leaning in, I am going to find a way to look for and seize opportunities because I believe in myself And I I am going to make sure that my family does well. I'm going to approach it with passion. I'm not going to be greedy. I'm not going to be selfish. But I am going to do the best I can for me and mine. People who succeed are not just those people that are passionate. They are those people that are passionate and get everyone around them passionate as well. I said I was excited about this because I want us to start talking about moving forward, not are we going to get back to normal. But let's talk about how to move forward. And to do that, you have to be intelligent, and that intelligence has to be agile and adaptive. Because I don't know what you might be doing six months from now, but I know if you are creative and agile and adaptive, it could be very, very exciting. And we're all in this together. And, you know, I decided uh, beginning today, well, yesterday, that I was going to stop running COVID-19 coronavirus shows. I've done a lot of them because I felt like I had a lot to say to get people focused. And I've done it. And what I believe now is that people are saturated, that there's category topic fatigue. And what they want is, gosh, Dr. Phil, I miss Dr. Phil. I miss those topics. I miss that content. 
So from now through the end of May, you're going to be seeing stage shows that we did before the pandemic, before that was even a word in our vocabulary. You're going to be seeing the content that you've been so supportive of. We had some of those shows that were done and that we were so excited about that we saved them for the month of May, which is a big month for advertisers. So some of our best shows of the year, we actually had shot and saved before the pandemic. We're going to run them all in in May. Take your mind off of this. Start getting you focused back on life. Think about what I've said. I don't want to drone on. I always say, don't play long, play big. I hope I'm playing big in your mind. I hope I'm stimulating you to think and talk with your with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends. Tell everybody to listen to this, and then you guys talk about it. Get a Zoom session and talk about what I've said. Challenge yourselves to say, how can we use what he's talking about? How can we be curious and cognitively agile, critical, open-minded, creative, and adaptive? How can we do all of that to hit the reset button and create this relaunch as an opportunity. Let's not worry about getting back to normal. How much of back to normal are we going to get? Let's talk about how we can move forward. I'm Dr. Phil. Thanks for listening.